0: This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A.
1: It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys, and my co-host Chris Field is here with me. And we have a very special guest. We have Pastor Dimas Salaberios of Infinity New York Church. How you doing today, Pastor?
2: Hey, doing fine. So glad to be on with you guys.
1: Now, did I get your name a hundred percent right? Because I was practicing. I always practice names to make sure I get them.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, you you hit it on the head. <laughs> awesome,
1: awesome. Well, you know, it's like whenever we do a ton of interviews, and every time you're doing an interview, you want to make sure because my own name I've had, you know, mispronounced a million times, and it's always it's always awkward when that happens. So I'm glad that I got it. Well, listen, we have a million things to talk to you about. You have a new book coming out in September called Street God um, and your life story. I, I always love and I know Chris loves these stories, too, of, of people who end up in one place in life and then they end up in a totally different place later on. They find God, their life changes. And I think you have a really amazing story. So I guess let's let's sort of dig deep and dive right in to your younger years. And and then I want to move into your ministry and talk a little bit about that. But when you, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you were very young, when you were around 11 years old, you encountered drugs and, and started using and selling, correct?
2: Yes, yes. Um, you know, at age 11 in in middle school, which was a predominantly white school in, in the suburbs of Queens and Bayside, um, you know, where you see the manicured lawns, everybody was, you know, working class, middle-class people, and uh, and a young man uh, brought mescaline in there and uh, and offered to sell it to me, and I didn't even believe at that age that something so small could do anything. And, uh, and I popped the pill, and would you believe it? That was the day there was an assembly on how to stay away from drugs. I, I mean it was so profound. I was so embarrassed. But yeah, it came in at a very young age and set me off from that point on to start uh, dealing drugs.
1: So at 11 now, by the time you were 15, you found yourself in in legal trouble, right? I mean, take me, take me through that, that process over those four years, what went on and then take me through what it was like at such a young age to find yourself in that sort of trouble.
2: I mean, at at age 11, um, after trying mescaline, I was offered an opportunity to deal it. So I started to sell mescaline. Then I was told about marijuana. There was a girl in the community that had, you know, large quantities of marijuana. So I started to sell that. And then um, one of my friends told me about crack. So I dipped and dabbed with, with selling crack. And uh age 13, we had a number of different fads where, you know, my friends started stealing cars and jumped in a car, got arrested. My mother got a paid lawyer. And, uh, you know, that case got dismissed, which was, you know, great. But then I started to feel like, oh, okay, in my mind, you get a lawyer, you know, you can, you can beat things. And then I watched a show on Miami Vice, which pointed out that they couldn't do anything with this 15 year old drug dealer because he was a minor. So then I started to think I had a jail get free card, you know, get out of jail card. And, um, you know, this kind of thing, this kind of mindset came on me. So I started the deal. And then at age 15, I got arrested for selling marijuana. But at the time I wanted to lie and act like I was older than that because I didn't want to put my mother through the problem. My mother was a principal. My father was a captain of correction and an Air Force guy. So I didn't want the embarrassment to come on them, but I wanted to handle it myself. And uh, I got let out the next day, and then I started to sell more, and I got picked up for crack again at age 15. And that time, they left me in Rikers Island, one of the toughest...
3: Wow. Wow.
2: Great. Uh, and it was frightening. And the drug dealers bailed me out, but they did it five days later. So it was tough. I had a lot of fights. I got beat up a lot. And I thought this was just a part of a normal drug culture. At least that's how they were trying to father me into the business.
1: Wow. And, and how long how long were you behind bars?
2: um at that age 15 I was behind bars for 5 days then once again uh went to court um paid lawyer and you know sort of like beat that case and started to catch you know more cases as time i think i got probation uh for that one and uh so i was in and out of jail um, you know just being arrested and being released the next day from around 13 till age 16 and finally at age 16 they sentenced me to a year because um you know i had had about three or four different drug arrests and actually that final arrest that they busted me for um, that was the one time i was innocent it was crazy <laughs> they, they arrested some the other drug dealer took the drugs off that person and came and planted it on me and I know people don't believe these cops are like that, but this was older New York City, and that kind of stuff went down because they just wanted to get me off the street.
1: Mm. Yeah, you, you talk you talk about pivot points, and I hear all of this. And I mean, you really had a turbulent time during your teen years. What was sort of your pivot point—the point in which you know, what what event or event sort of led up to you saying, "I can't do this anymore. Something has to change." Because obviously now. You're the pastor of Infinity New York Church. You're living a totally different lifestyle. So what was it? What was the event or the moment that led you to just change entirely?
2: Well, after being released from 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 that jail. Now, now let me paint this picture. I went to, you know, I went to junior high school, went to high school, raised in a good family in the, in a zip code that I shouldn't face these kind of problems. But the crack boom was so large. That um, it started to take me down down this road, So once I was released, I tried to go and get a job, and uh, and once I the only job I was able to get was to work at White Castle, <laughs> and that was for four dollars and change an hour when I was used to making a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. So I said, "You know what? This is not cutting it. I'm going back into that world, started to deal again and uh, and dealt drugs for a number of years. Um, you know, and, and then it got into my twenties at this point, And there's some stuff in between that. I don't know if we have time to share, but you know, there's a point where I did get handcuffed again by the cops, uh, uh, and they tried to take me in to, to do time, you know, after getting out of jail, they were going to violate me. And, uh, and I escaped with the cuffs, dressed like a woman, got on a train. Jeez. Whoa, escaped, wait a minute. You know, we definitely a have time of... for
1: this. We definitely, <laughs> yes,
0: tell us the story. We need to hear this story.
2: Okay, so so here's what happened. I didn't realize at this point I started to become a street god. That meant high-level running two or three or four operations on different drug blocks with lookouts, gunmen, lieutenants, mm. workers, people underneath me. So once that started to happen, I was cooking up large, large uh, portions of cocaine like the TV show Breaking Bad. But I didn't realize the cocaine was going into my pores. I didn't even know what pores were. Well, I remember I'd be sweating and cooking and sweating and cocaine all around me. So I was turning in dirty urine. So I finally went to the parole officer and I said, how are you doing? I said, great. I said, I'm going to my GED program. You know, I had all the fronts up there. I'm going to GD program. I'm studying. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm going to get out of this situation. She handcuffed me and said, three times, you turned up with a dirty urine for cocaine. You're going upstate. Now, upstate, I fought like crazy. I fought almost every day. I was fighting constantly. So those images came to my mind. I said, I'm not going back upstate. I started to sit down, move the handcuffs to the front of me. And when she came back into the room and sat down, I said, are you ready to go? I said, no. And I leaped up, grabbed the door, started to run. And, and I was on like the fifth floor. I started leaping down flights of stairs mm. while all the throw offs were coming after me. I came down to the first floor where there was always a guard. And when I, that moment when I hit the first floor... There was no guard. I escaped out of there, went to a location, got this friend of mine, paid him money to get my handcuffs cut off. And do you know the person that cut them off was a parole officer? I Mm. paid a parole officer. The minute he cut the cuffs, it was like he had one of those moments, like the usual suspect, like, this is the guy. Are you kidding me? (laughs) But he was in my house. The minute he got out, like 10 minutes later, the cops rushed my house but I was already gone. I, 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 told my, I told my girlfriend at the time, we have to come up with a plan to get out of New York. So I bought a wig. I bought women's clothes. I dressed like a woman, got on, the, got on the Amtrak train with pounds of marijuana and crack on me and rode all the way down to Winston-Salem. And that's how I got out because they usually have people with pictures looking for you at Greyhound and Amtrak in those locations when you escape. Mm-hmm. So I get down to North Carolina, and that's when it really took off. Well, I became the number one marijuana dis- distributor in, uh, in Winston-Salem. So I sold millions of dollars worth of drugs there, uh-huh. hands down. And three women came and prayed for me. And that's when I had the crisis moment, wow. when, they, when they prayed for me. It was like the power of God came on me. I fell out on the floor, I, 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 at that moment I lifted my hands up to God and I just said, I am finished, I am finished, I'm never selling crack again. I said, I'm only going to sell weed, God, because it's natural. And I was <laughs> confused.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I dropped all the kilos of crack, I was done. I started to sell the weed, and I started to tide the money into a church. Can you believe this? I <laughs> I was, was shot to the church and give them thousands of dollars every week, and the church kicked off a building fund because they never had money like that coming through and I didn't know um, you know to fill out envelopes. I just kind of put it in the general big basket that was there, and they would open it up, and they would see fifties and hundreds and you know, 20s and these stacks. And -hmm. and I thought, I honestly thought God was blessing my marijuana business. And Mm -hmm. so a youth pastor came in, ministered to me and told me that that wasn't right. And that I had to go back to New York and turn myself in. So he ruined the building fund, but but straightened my life out. So that's part of the, the, the crisis moment where where Jesus entered, and I started to really, at that point, with guidance. I needed guidance, and the youth pastor gave me the guidance on what to do.
0: So how'd you get into the pastorate then from from there?
2: So um, from there, I came to New York, uh, turned myself in. The judge saw the transformation on me. I was facing seven years for escape. She released me and said, jail would ruin you. She liked the person that I became, and uh, that, that's unheard of, like, like a, a real pardon from, from a judge. And uh, so I started to go to churches, and I always had a charismatic personality, so I started to attract people. I got put in charge of a youth group of 12 people, grew it to 80, started to try to preach and, uh, and would do these rallies in these high schools and would get 800 kids, 1,000 kids to show up. So people started to, to really seek me out, wow. and I knew I needed some, some, talk, some, talk, some type of a ministry training. So Tim Keller took me under his arm and taught me how to preach the gospel, allowed, allowed, helped me to get into a master's degree program to get my, uh, my master's, and to you know and to graduate from college and then I went to launch a youth church
0: now how'd you get and, con- uh, how'd you get connected then, with Tim how'd you, get, how'd you get connected with Tim Keller
2: well Tim started to come around New York City uh, and he, he was being toured around by the organization I'm the president of now called concerts of prayer right. so concerts of prayer introduced Tim Keller to thousands of pastors and I went up to him and just said, Hey, what about a youth church? Hmm. And he said, why not? And I said, if you're serious, give me a cell phone number. And he did. Cause I didn't, you know, I had bad experiences of people giving me their numbers and you call their secretary and it goes nowhere. And then, um, he put me in a room, me and my wife, we had just got married. He put me in a room with 30 other people that wanted to plant churches. And I came up with the most realistic model. And, uh, and outdid everyone, and, and, and he said, you know what, you have a preaching gift, he said, you know, and I learned Reformed teaching because I was trained by John MacArthur by listening to the radio mm. and reading all of their books. So I was Reformed in faith, had an urban edge, but, um, but also was, a, was gifted as a communicator, and God's blessing was just all over it.
0: That's amazing. So,
2: so that's how me and Tim hooked up.
0: That's great.
1: Now, based on your I mean, based on your teen years and everything you went through um, and, and then you sort of look at the work that you do now, I would imagine that you sort of can look back and say, "Okay, God was preparing me in so many in so many ways through the decisions I made for what I would be doing now. Can you talk a little bit about your ministry at Infinity, what you guys do and the population that you serve and also um, you know, I want to. I want to hear a little bit about how you've impacted the crime rate in the community. I've heard a, a lot of really good things about that as well.
2: Yeah, and and, and of course, you know, we're leaping. And, and in the book Street God, they will find. I mean, you can follow through the trace of this because you know you grew up in a suburban area. So I wasn't really wicked at heart. You know, like I I never killed anyone. I've been in several drug wars. 30 of my friends were murdered and, and, you know, and all those kind of things surrounded. But I always valued education. I always wanted to own a business. I always wanted to, to you know, better myself and do some really incredible things. So, so when people would get around me, they would, they would see that, that passion and that drive and people wanted to be around me and they would always like but at the same time, I knew how to transition and, and deal with the roughest of people in the underworld. So when I started to this, this, uh, had the choice to plant a church, I could have planted in Midtown Manhattan. We could have planted anywhere. But we decided to go into the heart of a project. And we went to the birthplace of hip-hop, which is called Bronx River, and we planted a church there. And we eliminated homicides from that community for over a decade because we started to target every person that that people would say this is the biggest drug dealer here or this guy is the biggest you know um, boss in the area or this guy you know he's like a hitman I've led hitmen to Christ I've led drug bosses to Christ I've led prostitutes to Christ and and many of them now are in college and lots of completely turned around. So, so we have a blueprint in our book. It's an incredible case study where people can see what God can do when we are not afraid, as
1: Christians,
2: to go in and take on uh, the people that are the key problems in society. Wow.
1: That's amazing. It's just, yeah, it's remarkable. And I think, you know, we, we've we appreciated your time here. I, have, I just have, I have one more question. I don't know if, yeah. if Chris has any others, but this is sort of a loaded question for you. And that is, you know, what is the key... I think you just you hit on something important. A lot of us don't even share our faith generally, but when there's an extra barrier in our minds like, oh gosh, that person's a drug dealer or that person's and not that there should be. We're we're all sinners, but I think when you when you look at prostitution or drug dealing and all of those things, it becomes a bigger more insurmountable task in people's minds to to try to share the gospel. What what tip would you have? And again, I know it's a loaded question, but I guess what's the key to reaching somebody um, who might be living a lifestyle like that?
2: Um, one of our models is in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, "If someone you know compels you to go one mile, be willing to go two. So once I realized in a community, this could be, you know, right now, heroin is dominating the white suburbs. I mean, and, I, and I, I'm in one of these areas where I'm seeing 17 year old young white kids dead, and I'm standing in front of them giving comfort to their family. So I, I live
1: this- in Westchester, and I could tell you that is a- absolutely every town here is in a panic over the heroin mm-hmm. epidemic.
2: Yeah. So, so what, what I love to empower people that are hearing now, in every community, is usually around seven to eight key people that trigger everything. And just like Jesus went after Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we have to find out where are those key people and begin to pour into them. So I would go up to them, I would shake their hands, and I would say, how are you doing? I want to introduce you, myself to you. I'm Dima. And they're like, well, who are you? And I would say, I'm your pastor. And they would say, what do you mean, what? <laughs> I would say, listen, you live in this area and you don't have a church. My church is in this area. My ministry is there. I'm your pastor. And I'd catch them back. I'm here for you. And what would happen is when those guys would get arrested, I would show up instantly. I'd be one of the first people to visit them. And they'd come on the visit floor like, yo, yeah, you? And I would say, yeah. I'd say, we're your friends. And I would challenge them. And I would put, you know, $50 in their their commissary so they could get food and stuff. I'd bring them a sweatsuit. And I would say, you know what? We're here because we want to tell you how much God loves you. And I want to share with you, man, that God has a bigger plan than what you're going through now. And I would do this over and over again. And when those guys would come out, I would have instant street credibility Mm. all over the neighborhood. And, And over and over again, for some of them, I've had to even travel many hours to go visit them. And when they saw that love and they saw that someone was willing to go the extra mile, I can't tell you how many times they said to me, nobody would pick me up. Nobody would be willing to ride with me. Nobody would come and visit me. Nobody would do what you're doing and after a while that love would share everything and most drug dealers and what you'll get from going to streetgodbook.com what you would really see is 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 that though I was this large drug dealer I'm reachable and these guys are able to be reached and that's what I want people to really understand and get you know that we all can do this kind of ministry it's not because I had that lifestyle, either there's other people. I got a white girl from Ireland who's in our church, who's having an impact on like 20, 17-year-old young men. So it doesn't matter what you look like, but are you willing to go the extra mile? And I think that makes all the difference.
0: Well, that's amazing. You know, and and, and you've been very generous with your time, but I had a couple other questions that I want to ask you, Pastor. And and if you don't want to answer them, I I get it. You can just give me a, a verbal kick in the head, and that's fine, and we'll move on. Uh, but my first question, and they're, and they're kind of related, and I and I ask you this because you and I come from very different backgrounds. I'm from Lily White, Eastern Washington State, and you're from you know New York. I mean, we we have lived very different yeah. lives. You know, I I I've, I've barely I've rarely even jaywalked. You know, and you've got a, a whole history. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this, and these and this question has two topics within it that are kind of related. Just because of the way the media has treated them lately, there's a Black Lives movement out there that's been very controversial, and and I respect your opinion. So I, I'm curious about your your I, your thoughts on the Black Lives movement, Black Lives Matter movement, as well as um, the current debate and fight over uh, the the conduct of of American police. What are your takes on that?
2: Well, I think I think the Black Lives movement, which uh, gets a lot of criticism. Like, like most leaders get. Like Al Sharpton gets a lot of criticism. Uh, Jesse Jackson, some of these guys get a lot of criticism. But what they're able to do is put a spotlight on some realities that's been going on for years. I have a friend whose name was Freedom who was murdered by detectives. They beat him to death and threw him out the window. Mm. That never made a newspaper. Mm. I've been beat up by cops. I've been, you know, my pants dropped down to my knees and shoved on the floor like a movie straight out of content. I've been through all those kind of scenarios, which are real. The difference with today is everyone's walking with a camera. We didn't have that before. So now America gets to see what has been going on for years. And it's almost like with Martin Luther King, when you saw the dogs, that's when people said, this has got to stop yeah. now. Um, you know, cops, you know, they have a very hard job and I'm sympathetic and there are great police officers, right. but there's also bad ones yep. and there needs to be a movement where the police can work in the communities or, or the cops could be people that understand the community a little more and build relationships. Yep. Like the beat top days when they used to walk the streets and know everybody, there wasn't that there wasn't the same amount of abuse that went on. But when you start to hire people from outside of the outside of the boroughs coming in to police the boroughs and all they know is, yeah, I watched New Jack City, yeah. I saw, you know, the images on T V these are some low-life bums, I'm going to go there, I'm going to snatch them, I'm going to throw them on the ground, I'm going to make sure I make it home tonight, and they probably have a gun. You know, it brings this, this bravado attitude that brings out the worst in everyone. Right. So So, it's, um, yeah. so, so this it, it's good that it's in discussion.
0: Right, and... You know, and and like you said, there's there are good cops and bad cops, and it's going to vary by department, I would suppose. I mean, it's going to be like the NYPD is very different from the Spokane Police Department, which is very different from the Mayberry Police Department, right? I mean, there's going to be you might have you might have some sort of you know bad attitudes breed more bad attitudes too issues. So, in, in within departments, not within neighborhoods, but within departments. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. The, and go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Finish your thought.
2: Oh, no, I'm just going to say, and even um, like I can drive my car through really good areas in, in upstate New York and other places because of the amount of media that portrays African-Americans as wicked, as evil, as lazy and all these things. But many of us know black doctors, black lawyers, black right. uh, teachers and so forth. Uh, there's times where I I can face incredible abuse in areas like that where they're just quick to you know did you steal this car or is this yours I mean yeah. first out your mouth like excuse me you know and I can have on a, a, a button up white shirt you know so yeah. so um, there has to be. Oh, a lot of work, and yeah. I think sin is at the heart of a lot of it. You right. know, yeah. and people are angry and the power abusive, of, abuse of power, and a lot of different things that just happen to go on. So, it, it's a tough situation that we're going to have to deal with for a long time. Yeah, I, at I, least that's
0: the point. yeah. I agree. I I think that there's. I think it's way more complicated than either side is playing it out. As I think, um, let me ask yeah. you. Let me ask you another question, and this is right up Billy's alley. It's very Billy's very passionate about this topic. Um, the, the whole, there's a, there's a big, uh, push for, uh, for drug legalization, especially pot legalization. What are your thoughts on that? Uh-oh, I Billy. Uh-oh, Billy, they're after you. I think that's,
2: I, I'm totally against that. And I'll tell you why. Marijuana has always been the gateway into, into more drug
1: abuse. Thank you. Um, <laughs> okay.
2: You can look at the research and the 12-step programs. You can look at the research of, of people that, that relapse, or you can follow the data of how people started to use drugs, even in my own story. Yeah. You know, at age 15 or 16, I was addicted to crack for one year. And in that one year, I was smoking marijuana, a pretty girl turned the marijuana around and said, I mean, this girl was, I, I, never, I never was exposed to a girl this pretty making me an offer like she offered She said, put your lips on my lips, and I'm going to blow the smoke into your lungs. I just wanted to put my lips on her lips. (laughs) And when I did it, she blew death into me. Mm. And then from that point, you know, as a gradual progression, I found myself hooked on crack, beat up inside of a drug spot called The Hole, with a pillow with blood on it that they showed me how they just murdered the last drug dealer that was there. And my life was on the line at my lowest point. And i said to myself, I need help. Mm. Just like many kids today, they got hooked on heroin. They probably said, Oh, I'll just take a little sniff, or what's this going to do. And it all starts from marijuana. And then the weed doesn't do it anymore. Then someone said, you really want to feel something? Try this heroin. And they can be right there in Dobbs Ferry, New York, saying, try this heroin right now. And then you wonder, how did my kid ever get used to this? So these freedoms uh, of allowing marijuana to be legal is going to set our country and our communities further back than we ever could imagine. Well, and that's coming from drug Dealer. Former
0: drug dealer. Well, I appreciate your honesty on that. That's that's. Uh, I know that, that thrills Billy to hear you say that, and uh, it well, does, me, and me as well. Billy's very passionate on that issue, and and uh, you know it's it's good to Go hear Billy. somebody with some so with some expertise on it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, for taking a stand on that as well. So we have taken up a bunch of your time. Uh, let I wanted to give you a minute here. Is there anything you need to promote or would like to promote, or you want to talk about your church a little bit, or your website, or your book? Um, you know, take a minute and, and tell our listeners what it is you really want them to to take away.
2: I just want to share with you um the two the some of the most intellectual communicators of Christianity today is Tim Keller, and another one's an apologist, Josh McDowell. Mm -hmm. Tim Keller says, after reading my book, that it is the best uh, redemption account that he has ever read. Um, Josh McDowell says it's the cross and the switchblade for this generation. If you get this book, if you're a mother, it's going to empower you on how to look for signs within your child and also, how to help your child not fall into several pitfalls that I fell into. And I had everything. We had two cars. You know, we had a car. We had the manicured lawn. We had great schools. I went to, I was in an all-white district. Everything that people worked hard for to set up to keep their kids away from this kind of stuff. And I wasn't the only kid that was getting high at that age. White kids were getting high with me. All of us in middle school started to fall into this bracket. So get Street God Book. Mm-hmm. And if this is the month, if this, uh, for the month of August, if you get the book um, at StreetGodBook.com, one book will go to you and one book will go to an inmate in jail. Wow. And we want to reach the kids in jail as well as out of jail. And we love you, being in Barnes and Noble. You can find it on audiobook all on September first. Rush the bookstores and let's get this message out and let's help make this the country.
0: Oh, well, that's that's great. Thank you so much, Pastor, uh, for coming on. It's Pastor Dimas Salabarios and his new book, Street God. And again, you can pick it up at streetgodbook.com. And uh right now, if you order one, you'll get they'll give one to uh to an inmate. And so uh thank you again pastor for what you're doing and for yeah, coming on so and sharing it, sharing it with us and uh um, oh. we're we are we will be we will covet to, covenant to pray for you and your ministry and the book you got coming out because you are changing lives in in ways that a lot of people uh can't or won't so uh thank you again for what you're doing
2: oh thank you thank you
0: all right we'll talk to you later really pastor it. god bless all right thank you bye-bye